This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 86 of the Are the 18 Ed podcast. In this episode, I am talking about conflict in the workplace. The examples that I give are within the school setting, but this is relevant for you if you are in a healthcare setting, if you're in a private practice as well, because really we all need to work together to support kids. Now, This was originally taken from the program called SLP Learning Academy, which is now called the School of Clinical Leadership. So a lot of these trainings are no longer in the program because I have expanded it and made the program for all pediatric service providers who are supporting K-12 kids. So this could include psychologists, social workers, speech pathologists, other types of therapists, other service providers. So really, I found that In order to really support K-12 kids, I needed to support the entire team. And so that's why I think a lot of these issues with leadership in in education and healthcare, really, they need to come from people working together. So that's why this topic is so important, because I think it's really disheartening when team members turn on each other. But unfortunately, everyone gets frustrated. Everyone is working in their silo, not because they want to, just because, you know, it's it's hard to collaborate across the board. So I really wanted to talk about this topic. And I am sharing some examples from the SLP's perspective, because I have taken this Q&A from the program that was, again, originally designed for SLPs, but I think that this is something that can happen across disciplines. Some of the examples that I'm going to give here, I, I have seen happen to social workers, for example, um, you know, people not really understanding what they do. And so they, you know, misinterpret different decisions that they might be making. So that certainly happens. Now, the other thing I wanted to say is that in this particular scenario, it's it almost seems kind of like an SLPs versus the teachers kind of thing. I just wanted to say that I have had some amazing partnerships with teachers. And, and again, I think we all need to be on the same team. And so I do give some recommendations for SLPs to create buy-in and work with teachers, but I don't want this to seem like we're on separate teams. We're all on the same team. And I think that really what you want to do and how you want to look at this, regardless of whether you're a teacher, um, whether you're a therapist, even if you're a parent who just wants to advocate for your kids, I think that we all need to form an alliance together. So I wanted to just say that, that really these principles, even though they are specific to certain disciplines in the context that I am sharing them, I think that they can be really applicable to anybody who is, who's wanting to support kids. So before I move on, I wanted to just mention that I do address some of these topics and I do coach people through scenarios like this in the School of Clinical Leadership. The School of Clinical Leadership is all about, 
you guessed it, clinical leadership. So what that actually means is that I help you to better leverage your time through a concept that I refer to as asset stacking. And what this does is that it flips traditional productivity strategies on their head because they typically don't work. You can't fix huge systemic issues when you have an unreasonable workload. What you have to do is create one asset at a time and stack them so that you're creating leverage. What this allows you to do is create enough time to build your next asset so that you can focus on high impact things. So you can get out of the weeds instead of just focusing on worksheets and lesson planning, you can focus on creating protocols that are going to help you leverage your time, be more efficient, be more effective, and also pool your resources with other professionals and build some powerful collaborations that are going to help to better support kids. So there's a lot to this. There's a lot to being a clinical leader, but you can do it now, even if you're not in an administrative position. So this is a fit for you. If you are in a position and you just want to be more effective in your current position, you don't necessarily want to leave and move on to something else. Or if you think, you know what, maybe I do want to advance my career. Maybe I do want to move on to a formal leadership position. Maybe I do want to see what else is out there. Maybe I want to start a side hustle or a business. This is ideal for you because regardless of whatever path you choose, the key to being successful is thinking of yourself as a leader and starting to develop some of these skills. So I share how to do that, and I coach people through that process in the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about how to become a member, just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. So now please enjoy episode 86, where I talk through a number of different scenarios surrounding addressing conflict in the workplace. So there are obviously a number of different ways that you can end up supervising SLPs. So number one, you can take Um, clinical externs, so graduate students who are um, needing to get their clinical hours before their clinical fellowship. So that's one option. If you have a university in the area, a lot of times they are really in need of clinical placements for their students, and they are always willing, if that's the case, to Um, use you as a practicum supervisor so that they can have some of their clinicians do off-sites. I know that when I was in the the clinic, I had mostly just outpatient therapy, and I would have loved to be able to go to a school, go to another outpatient setting, go to um, some type of a hospital situation, because when that's the case, you're really in the thick of it. You really get to see more uh, patients or students. And I would have loved to have that experience. So that is certainly one option for you if you want to get into supervision and you're kind of thinking, you know what, my district doesn't want to hire SLPAs or I don't have a clinical fellow. Uh, Those are things that you can facilitate really. I mean, honestly, I did it without approval from my administrators um, or not that not without approval, but I was the one that initiated it. And then I went to them and said, Hey, I'd like to take on some externs. And they, you know, take student teachers all the time. So that was great. They were happy to do that. They, there was a kindergarten class that needed a lot of extra help and they were really happy to have the extra people. So that's one capacity. So actual graduate students, 
um, then you can also supervise. So, so there's a couple different levels of graduate students. So there's the ones that who are first or second year that are still taking courses and then they're doing some of their hours. And then you have graduate students who are going to do their full-time externship at the end. So that's another option that you can do. So basically like a student teacher, even though we call it something different in speech pathology. And then you have clinical fellows. So the SLPs who are just coming right out of um, their, um, they're, they're graduated, but they need to complete their clinical fellowship for, for nine months. And then finally you have SLPAs, or if you are in a supervisor position who is supervising other SLPs. So there's really different levels. A lot of the principles that I'm going to share with you today are going to apply regardless of the level, but I am going to talk about some key differences that you're going to want to make, or at least just distinctions that you're going to want to be aware of as far as how hands-on you're going to need to be, depending on what level that you are at. Obviously, if you are in a supervision position where you're a director and you're supervising other SLPs who are fully certified, maybe you are experienced, that's going to be a lot different than supervising a graduate student who is a first-year graduate student who really hasn't had all of their coursework yet and who has minimal clinical experience. So obviously, there are going to be some principles that are going to be similar, but um, it, it's, it, it, you're going to have to be aware of those differences. So I wanted to just make some key points that you're going to want to be aware of and some, some shifts that you're going to want to make and really some components that you'll want to want to address with supervision. So um, number one, I would say that you, and I'll dive into each of these things, but I want to kind of hit the high points. So number one, be aware of personality. And I know I've talked about personality before, but um, I'll say personality and habits because, you know, again, I know there's debate like what if are the personality tests out there accurate, all of those things like, or, and I've talked about, um, can you be an introvert and be successful as an SLP? I've talked about those types of things. So regardless of our personality tra traits, regardless of if it's habits that we've learned or things that are genetic, it doesn't really matter. The, the thing is, is that we know that people have certain tendencies and preferences. And so we want to be aware of those and how they work when it comes to being a clinician. And sometimes we might want to be aware of habits people need to change if they're going to be successful. Um, for certain people, certain habits might just be simply something that they're not aware of, that it's like, oh, you know what, you're doing this and I would recommend changing it. And then certain things might be a little bit more ingrained in their personality that uh, might not be their default setting. And they're going to really have to make some tough decisions as far as, you know what, do I want to make the effort to change this? Or am I going to not and you know risk not being successful in this position? So personality and habits would be the first thing that you're going to want to be aware of. Um, number two, I would just say... Um, I'm going to say the levels of explicit instruction. Um, and the reason that I say this is because I, one of my biggest insights when I was teaching um, college students, so 
SLPs who were in their graduate programs. And even honestly, when I was teaching special education teachers and I was had a mix of people who were pre-service, so they had never taught before. And then I sometimes would have um, special education teachers that were currently teaching. Um, occasionally, I'd get um, a school nurse, an SLP, reading specialist, things like that. So um, the, the thing I want, the distinction I want to make, though, is that a lot of times we're very, you know, we're very mindful of how we teach kids and how we handle therapy and we want it to be explicit and we want it to be scaffolded and we want errorless learning and all these things. But then a lot of times when we go to teach adults, all of that goes out the window and we totally forget all of these strategies that were working really effectively for the number of different ability levels that we were working with when we were working with children and or, or even adults that are going through rehab. But then when we get to teaching adults that are, quote, neurotypical or don't have diagnosed disabilities or maybe don't, aren't in programs that involve any type of special education, we kind of just, like, expect them to be able to adapt without doing those different things. And it's really important that when you are, especially if you've got a clinician that's early on in their career and maybe they are working with a clinical area or a particular situation that is totally new to them. Um, you can, you want to remember that there are there's a lot of research out there about what teaching methods work, and we should use them when we're supervising adults as well as when we are actually working with the kids in therapy. So you can apply those same principles when it comes to actual supervision. And I'll talk about that framework in just a minute here. Um, I've got an actual book up here um, that outlines how to do it with kids and with teaching, but we'll talk about therapy and how that looks as well. Um, and, and then finally, I think the, the third thing is that if you are in a position where you want to get into supervision and you're not quite sure um, how that can come about, I'll talk about just some different logistical ways that can you that you can actually make that happen, um, and how when you are in that situation, how you can give good feedback and how important that is. And I think that that kind of goes into the whole explicit instruction framework. So we'll talk about personality, explicit instruction, um, and then and the feedback, and then also some opportunities. So. Let's talk a little bit about personalities. I have in a previous call talked in depth about things like the DISC profile. I've talked about introversion and extroversion. And I wanted to just touch on this really briefly, and then I'll dive into the explicit instruction framework. But um, the thing is, is that um, there are a lot of different ways of doing things, ways of interacting. And when I had my, I had a batch of, graduate students who came in to, um, a, it was a, I believe three, two or three day a week clinical practicum with me where they would come in the morning and they would, what I would do is I would take my groups of students who were really big and I would take these graduate students and then I basically split the groups up so that I, since I had multiple people there, instead of having to see these kids in big groups, what I did was I was able to split them up for those days that those graduate students were there. Now, of course, there were a lot of last minute schedule changes if the, you know, during the weeks that the graduate students were on spring break because they weren't synced up with us. 
But for those weeks that were that they were there, it was definitely worth it, and it was really helpful. So I had one um, student who was very reserved and calm, and she would kind of just sit back and um, not be very animated. She was very strategic. She knew like the structure and processes very well. She had very good clinical knowledge, um, and when she had kids who Um, She needed to walk them through steps in a process. She was very good at being very structured. And so for the kids that needed kind of a calming presence, it worked very well. Now, there were some kids who were kind of, um, I would say, on the other end of the spectrum where they were kind of mopey and sometimes they needed somebody who was going to bring them up because they'd already come in kind of down and they would actually need... um, just, and again, from experience from working with these kids, I knew that they needed somebody to be a little bit more upbeat and animated, especially if we had younger kids who might be working on things that we were addressing through play. When it was the older kids who were, who were learning things more of kind of academic and they didn't need a lot of distraction, her demeanor was very, very helpful. But um, there were certain times where it was kind of like, all right, You've got to be aware of where your student is and bring it up a notch. So that was something, some feedback that I gave her. If you've got somebody, and again, thinking about different sensory profiles, that some people need you to come up and some people need you to come down. Now, I've heard a couple different uh, ways of doing things. And a lot of this is actually, um, (laughs) a lot of these things that, that I've heard have actually been in the context of like sales training when, when you're having a conversation with somebody and you're going to want to offer them some type of a program or service um, if you're consulting and things like that. Um, and this is, can be something that you apply if you're doing private practice, you're doing evaluations, or if you're doing any t- other type of consulting. But um, you want to be aware of the other person's demeanor and mirror that And then what you can kind of do is you meet them where they're at and then you kind of bring them down or bring them down or up to where you are, depending on what they need to be. So for example, if you've got somebody, so let's say that this therapist, her tendency is to be kind of calm and focused and she's got kids that are way up here and then she's kind of down here and they're way up here there would be kind of a disconnect and they wouldn't be as focused and the, and the rapport wouldn't necessarily be there. So what she had to do and what we had to kind of talk about is come up to their level and be a little bit more animated. And then once you meet them at their level and you're kind of pacing and talking at the same pace, um, you, your body language being kind of mirroring their body language and doing some of the things that they're doing, um, obviously the things that are appropriate, then what you do is that you gradually slow your pace down, slow your, the, the pace that you're speaking and kind of bring it down. And what would happen is if her natural default was here and they were up here, um, what I would have, you know, what would I would recommend for her to do is kind of come up and then come down a little bit. You probably are never going to get them way down here, but you can kind of come in the middle. And then you know that for certain kids, that if you are somebody who kind of speaks very calmly and slowly, then um, you just know that you're going to have to kind of pick up the pace for certain kids so that you can mirror them and you can get to a point where they're, you're on the same wavelengths because that is going to help them 
to focus and pay attention. I will say that as a supervisor, you're going to want to do that too. Figure out where that other person is. So if you're a person that's like, that's really animated and you've got a clinician that you're supervising who is kind of focused and reserved, you're going to come down to them. Um, And then maybe you might, I mean, this is when you're having your conversations with them, or this is even when you are, maybe you're collaborating on a session during the point of supervision where you're kind of, um, maybe you're doing some of the session and you're having them kind of jump in when they're just beginning. So you're going to do the same thing. Like if you see that they're down here, meet them where they're at and then kind of bring them up um, and, you know, quicken the pace a little bit. So um, that can be something that you do that helps helps you to build rapport with them. Um, so that was one of my clinicians. And I had another clinician who was the exact opposite, where she was really loud and upbeat. And, um, and it was really good for some of those kids that were like that. But I had a, a couple students on the spectrum who needed more of that calming voice. Or I had some students who um, were working on fluency. They really worked well with with the clinician that was um, kind of more calm, reserved. But I still wanted to have that other clinician, the one who was very upbeat and loud, and and sometimes a little bit, it it almost came off a little bit in your face. Um, I, I needed her to get the experience with those types of students as well. So I still gave some of them to her. And what I had to do with her was the opposite, just make her aware, like, hey, you're being kind of loud. And, you know, this student, you know, when you can, when you see your student kind of flinching, when you're talking to them really loud, and you're, they, they're kind of backing up like this, you know what, be aware that you need to bring your, slow your pace down when you're talking, you need to come down to where they are, and then maybe you can bring them up again. So I had to be aware of those types of things with both of those clinicians. And again, they came in the same group um, of of grad students. And I would be, um, you know, I'd have the groups divided up. And I think the the rule was that I needed to be supervising them at least 50% of the time. So I could float back and forth between their sessions. So I'd be in with one where she was, you know, really animated. And then one where it was just really calm and it was you know, again, I was kind of going back and forth between those extremes, but I needed to do some coaching on just them and their awareness of their own personalities and how that's going to impact how it how they interact with their students and then also their colleagues. Um, I had one other student who um, within that group that I would say she was kind of in the middle. So that worked really well. I think that if you're kind of in the middle, it's a little bit easier to go up or down for your students. And a lot of people might be kind of right where you are. So it might not take much effort to be speaking at the same pace as them and establishing that rapport. Um, But she was, and this is something that I found with a lot of SLP graduate students, um, that they're really, really concerned. And again, what uh, the, the thing that they're concerned with is going to be different based on where they are in their, in their process. A graduate student's going to be thinking about different things than a clinician who is like an SLP who's been out in the field for five to 10 years. So the graduate students, while a lot of the clinicians are like, um, are thinking about things like, 
okay, like I've been out for this many years and there's this stuff I still don't know how to do and my students are struggling and I want my coworkers to respect me and I want to be able to plan therapy more efficiently so that I can get good results with my students and I can actually get home on time and not have piles of paperwork. Or maybe they're thinking about, all right, what's my next step in my career? Totally different thing. Graduate students are like, how do I get an A? <laughs> and and it's not that they're not concerned about the students. They wouldn't be there if they weren't, but it's so stressful. There's a lot of pressure on them. So I found that a lot of times when I would rate them not on the level of what they consider to be an A, they'd get really stressed. And I was like, you know what? Like, and, and I think that a lot of those rating scales that they had to fill out in graduate school, like Sometimes it would be a three out of five. And the way that the descriptors were for a three was like, you know, need some assistance or something like that. And I'm like, you know what? You're doing therapy for your first time. It's pretty normal for you to need some assistance. But to them, a three was like a C, which is the end of the world. And I didn't like that. So I had to kind of come at it in the middle. A lot of times, if I felt like they were growing, I would be kind of in the B minus range and say like, this is fine. And then at the end of, if I felt like they'd made adequate progress um, to the end of their clinical practicum, that at the end, I would end up giving them an A if I felt like they made the progression that they needed but um, I would be very, very clear in my descriptive feedback about the things that they needed to work on. But that was kind of a problem because um, I felt like the rating scales that they needed to um, complete were uh, not necessarily representative of where I thought I could honestly fill it out and not have that student feel like, oh my gosh, I'm getting a C, it's the end. You know, like, and then again, when in the program that I was supervising, that's being on academic probation. Um, and so they don't want to get a C. They honestly don't want to get a B either. They all want to get A's. But um, that was something I had to work through. But something else that I had to work through with some of those students is that it's like, you know what? It's really, there's such a need for SLPs. They think that they need to get all A's and they're worried about making mistakes. And so with that particular with a lot of them, honestly, but with this particular clinician, one of the things that came up was, um, I am going to correct you. I'm going to tell you when you're not doing things that are, um, that I'm going to tell you things that are incorrect along the way. It's not going to be like a test where it's like, you got the right answer. You're good. And even if you're doing a good job, I'm still going to tell you how you can be better because there is so much more to learn. And I'm going to jump in and offer a different way of doing things um, because I'm sitting right here, I think a lot of times in graduate student programs, depending on where they are, depending on how many clinicians the, um, the supervisor is watching. I know that in this particular clinic, the supervisor is watching from a video camera and watching multiple people and they do their best to give feedback, but it's not the same as me being in the schools where I can just jump in right there and say something. So I, um, that was a different experience for them. And so if you have somebody who is like very apprehensive about getting, um, about corrective feedback, that is a huge thing that you're going to want to address and want to con consistently be laying the boundaries of like, you know what, you have to be open to this and you have to be willing to accept this. And just because 
I'm telling you things that you can do better does not mean that you're not doing a good job and you're not exactly where you need to be. So um, I think that a lot of times there, we, we do talk about how, you know, a lot of times with working with students and people like in the classrooms and stuff, there's a lot more negative feedback in telling people when they're doing something wrong versus telling people that they're doing something right. So obviously we want to make sure that we do it at the right ratio. So telling them what they're doing right, probably more often than when they're doing things wrong. But a lot of times at the beginning, just preface that and say, um, you know what, at the very beginning, there are going to be a lot of things that I'm going to want you to change or that I'm going to recommend that you do or that I recommend that you improve on and be very clear about um, where they are if you think those things they need to be improving on are commensurate with where they are in the experience. Because again, a lot of those things that I had to rate them on were like completing evaluations independently. Well, they're in their second semester of graduate school. They haven't even had that course yet. How are they going to know how to do that independently? So of course, like to me, that's doing them a disservice by rating them higher than they actually should be because then they think, oh, I'm good. And it's like, no, you're not good. There's a lot more to learn. So I think just being clear about that. And um, if the rating scale, you know, again, I didn't want to give anybody a C. Um, I didn't think that they earned a C because that's, again, academic probation. But um, so I didn't want to do anything that would be uh, negative for them. But also I wanted to be very, very clear on the things that they needed to work on. So I, I had to, at some places, maybe mark them higher than I thought matched up with the descriptor, but thinking like, you know, that they didn't get a C, but I w- will, um, it, in this case, be use the descriptive feedback to really elaborate on what they need to work on here. So that's how I kind of dealt with the um, feedback and the personality and habits. So actually I did mention I was going to talk about feedback. I will, but I feel like I've kind of covered it, covered it there. Um, and I'll, let me just give you my, my tools, uh, or my, uh, my format that I use for feedback before we go on to the explicit instruction framework that I recommend doing. But, um, what I did at the very beginning is I just had a notepad And I would just, like, it was pretty basic. It could be just like, you know, doesn't need to be a really fancy form, but like literally just this. And I would just write notes. Um, And so what you can do is often put something like the students, like the the students that they're seeing or the patients that they're seeing, um, the um, things that they're working on, just like quick two-second thing that you're going to write down in the date um, and time. And so that they can reference that session. And then you might have it divided up into, uh, two different sections. So like things that were good, things you did right. And then areas where you can improve or, you know, I don't like to say things you did wrong, but you know, areas for growth or however positively way you want to word that. And that way you're kind of aware of, are you constantly telling them stuff they did wrong or are you just telling, you know, are you on the other end where like everything is sunshine and roses and you're never telling them anything constructive this way you can see if it's kind of balanced. And I would just like 
throughout that session, they'd say certain, certain things. If they gave, um, one of the things that I talked to them a lot about was, um, the beginning of the session, the way that they tell their students what they're going to be doing. Sometimes they'll just be like, all right, sit down, we're going to play a game or all right. Um, we're going to do this worksheet. I'm like, no, you're not going to do a worksheet. Like tell them what skills are going to work on. We're going to work on the, um, on putting sentences together today so that you can be a better writer or putting, um, we're going to work on putting sentences together. So it's easier to understand those long sentences when you're reading so that you're able to understand the story and you're able to learn something like that, where it explains why that was a big thing that I really had to kind of pound into people's heads to always start the session like that. So if they did something like that, if they did something where it was like they said something that was very explicit and meta with their students, I'd write down exactly what they said. And and I'm like, this was really good. Do more of this. Or if they just said, Hey, come in and sit down, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Hey, you know what? You started your session like this. And then I would write down something else um, that they could have said in, in its place. Um, Same thing with if they were giving their students specific feedback, if they said specific phrases that I thought were really great, then I would write it down and tell them what they did well. If they said something where I thought, you know what, you could have handled that differently, I could say like, you know, this was, you know, instead of doing this, something else you could do is this. Um, So I would do things like that, just being very, very specific throughout the session um, with as much of the session as possible so I could tell them exactly what they did well and what they could improve on. Or even if there was something where it was like, okay, this is kind of a challenging situation and you handled it fine, but here's another option. So pre- preventing, presenting it like that. Um, and then sometimes if you have a chance to debrief for them after the session, that's great. But a lot of times you can just, you know, make a photocopy of the feedback and give it to them. And that way they have all of that stuff. So those kind of things. So that's what I did. Pretty simple, but um, like I would just, you know, again, write and write and write and really dissect all of those different things for them so that they have a lot of things to reflect on. And then something else that you can do at the end is write some type of reflective questions like where will you go next? What would happen if you did this? Or if there's something that I thought they maybe struggled with. And, um, I thought like in some, sometimes I would just tell them what I think they could have done. But a lot of times what you can do there, if you have something like that is just write down at the bottom, here's a question I want you to think about. Um, how could you have handled this differently? What else could you have done here? Think about what you would do differently because sometimes once they've had time to reflect on that, they might be able to come up with it and apply it to a situation differently. So sometimes with those questions, I might lead them a little bit um, to make it a little bit more obvious what the questions are or what the answer is. Um, And sometimes I might leave it open-ended. So I did a mix of telling them different ways they could have handled it, asking them questions about what they could have done and things like that. So, and they really liked that. They said, you know what, I'm learning way more here than I do when I just have like one client at the clinic, not ripping on a clinic at all, but it's just a very different setting when you're actually in on site with somebody who's right there. And when you're getting lots and lots of different students and you're working with students in group versus outpatient. So 
again, it's great that they were able to get that experience. So that's what I do for feedback. So we've talked about personality types um, and different and kind of how to work with people there when it comes to showing them how to handle their different personality and how it relates to the people that they're working with. Um, we've talked about feedback, and now I want to talk a little bit about instruction, uh, explicit instruction. What I'm going to do is just bring up a quick document here um, and, and just share. There we go. Okay, hold on one second here. So I will share the link to this book. So this is the explicit instruction framework. Archer and Hughes. Oops. All right. Here we go. So this is what I do. Um, this is what you can do with your kids. Um, this is also what you can do with your clinicians. So the different steps are, so think about this when you are supervising clinicians um, who have you, when you're wanting to work them into doing something that they have never done before. Okay, so the way I've heard it is, um, one way to say it is, I don't know why my font just changed there, but I have it at 28 here. Bring it back up to 28. So it's I do, we do, you do is kind of the general mantra, but it could be modeling, the first step, guided practice, and then independent practice. So a lot of us do this with our students, like we'll show them how to write the sentence, and then we'll write the sentence with them, and we'll help them, and then eventually we want them to write the sentence on their own, or whatever the task is. Um, but a lot of times with therapy, or with work settings, we're just kind of dumped in at this third step here, which, um, yeah, sometimes if you are a good problem solver, you can kind of figure it out or you can figure out how to create, you know, if someone's not doing it for you, you can figure out how to watch somebody do it or maybe ask somebody to shadow them so that you get a little guided practice. But sometimes we have to just kind of jump off the deep end. So if you are supervising someone, you are in a unique opportunity to make this a lot more pleasant for them by working them through these steps instead of just throwing them in. So that's why supervision is such, can be such a rewarding experience. So um, obviously modeling, so this would be the way that would look with therapy or with whatever. Um, this could be like leading a an IEP meeting or an evaluation, or maybe you're even having a consult with a teacher. You're going to have lunch with a teacher to talk about students and you've got an agenda that you're going to go through for your collaborations and you want your um, clinician that you're supervising to take over. The first step that you would do would be modeling. Now there's a, a number of different ways you can do this. Um, obviously the ideal thing is to have them watch you and then, um, as many times as you think they need, then to maybe do it collaboratively or have you there so you can kind of jump in if you want some assistance and then eventually just have them do it while you're there supervising and eventually phase yourself out, kind of work yourself out of a job. Um, but 
uh, sometimes logistically, you might not have a lot of time. When I had my graduate students, they came in in October. I would have loved to have them start in August, but um, we didn't have a lot of time. So I had to, I, I kind of skipped some of these and was like, all right, I don't know if you've ever seen or done this kind of therapy, but have at it. And so then I did end up having to work backwards with some of them. Um, it saved in certain cases, I felt like, oh, they, maybe they had some experience working with kids before, even if it wasn't in the specific SLP clinical situation. So because of that, they maybe caught on a little bit faster, but I had, you know, like a lateral S and I had one of my graduate students do it and they just didn't know what to do. A lot of clinicians who are experienced don't know what to do with the lateralized S. So I did have to back up. And then I know that that was, that was my one student who was a little apprehensive about like, oh my gosh, am I going to get a B? And I was like, all right, so good job, but I'm going to have to jump in. I'm going to jump in and show you some things next time. And she was like, oh my gosh, I did it wrong. And I was like, no, 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 it's fine. A lot of people don't know how to do this and, um, and it's fine. I'm going to show you things. So it would have been ideal if I would have started, but it it was, we were kind of under time constraints. So I rushed it and I definitely saw some, had some struggles or they, there were some moments of where they were, they were struggling and not sure what to do because I didn't go through these steps. So having done it again, I would have probably, um, you know, again, I didn't know that we were going to have this clinical placement, but if I would have done it again, I probably would have had them start sooner in the year so that we could have gone through this and taken more time with it. So again, have them take notes, give them a template as far as what things you want them to watch in that session, as far as specific steps in the process. Like if you have a certain type of lesson or that has specific steps, show them what that is. Like if you have a certain training that you've watched, a certain book that you use, show them the training, um, explain what you do, and then have them watch you do it. And then see if they can pick out those different things. And then um, once they've done that, you're going to have them lead the session, but you're going to figure out where to jump in and maybe do part of it. Or maybe you even plan out and say like, Hey, this part is going to be, this part is kind of hard. Um, I'm going to take care of this part. Um, so maybe you divide up whatever the steps are and you do it together. And then independent practice, this is where you set them free and let them do it on their own. This is where, um, So this would be kind of, um, they watch you. This is a, you do it together, um, two therapists kind of a thing. This is a, um, you uh, watch them and give them feedback and they do the session. So what sometimes happens with independent practice, which happened with me because I jumped right to that stage with my clinicians, um, you realize, hey, you know what? We need to back up and we need to do some more modeling and guided practice. And that's totally normal. So um, I, I would be setting those boundaries with your clinicians, be explained that, you know what, like if we go backwards, not backwards, but if we back up and I jump back in, it probably, it's probably fine. It doesn't mean that you're not doing a good job. I mean, unless they do something that's really serious that you think is a red flag. But I think a lot of that back and forth is normal. I think a lot of clinicians that are actually practicing wish they would have had somebody to come in and be like, hey, try it this way. 
So I think when, especially when you are talking about those different personalities, um, one of the things that you're going to want to be aware of is um, their personality and their attitude about this types of feedback. Um, if you've got somebody who's like, you know, oh, this is awesome. Thank you. Like, how do I, because sometimes when, when people are struggling with something, they're like, please tell me something, like, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Like, it's so annoying when, at least I think it's annoying when I'm doing something and I'm like, this isn't right. Like something isn't working. And everybody comes in and they're like, good job. You're amazing. And I'm like, no, tell me what I'm doing wrong. This isn't, it's not working. Like, tell me, like, I, I am begging for them to pick something out and tell me that like, this was incorrect and this is a better way to do things. It's almost like, like when you're not feeling well and you go to the doctor and they tell you you're perfectly healthy and you're like, no, find something wrong with me. (laughs) So some people have that attitude of like, they just crave it and they just want to know how to get better. And those are the people when you're evaluating them, you really want to praise that, not just their clinical skills, but their attitude about that, because we need more, more people like that. And if you do have somebody that's kind of like, oh my gosh, it's like you want to talk them down off the ledge and say like, this is okay. And this is normal. And especially if you've got somebody who gets defensive and argues with you or anything like that, that is honestly more of an issue than them having, not having the clinical skills. I think honestly, even at this stage, especially when they're early on, um, attitude is just as important, if not more important than their actual clinical knowledge, especially with my particular situation where I had people who were really early on, um, or maybe they were in their clinical externship and they just hadn't had the coursework yet. Um, that's not their fault, but what I want them to do is be open to it. And when they don't know something, ask a question when I tell them that there's a, something that they need to do differently, that they're open to it and they're you know, happy to take that constructive feedback and, and they, they have a good attitude about it. So um, I think that, that is, that's kind of a key thing there. And, and again, the, the feedback where I talked about all that feedback that I give them, this, you really want to be strategic about that, be, um, be mindful and, uh, and give a lot of feedback when they are in that independent practice stage. Obviously you can do it as well with guided practice. You're going to be able to write more when you're in independent practice. If you're the one observing, it's going to be a little bit easier, but you can also provide that written feedback with the guided practice as well and provide them that written or information or information about the structure and the processes that you're using and explain them directly um, when you're in this modeling phase Um, so for example, I think a lot of times it's like, oh, you should watch this session or watch this person teaching. And, um, a lot of times that alone isn't enough because think about how we teach students with, um, with language disorders, we're very explicit with them, with what the steps are. So we don't just have them watch you do something, you explain what you're doing while you're doing it. And that's why with a lot of my courses, it's not me doing a therapy session. It's me explaining what the steps in the therapy session is. So that can be something, um, especially if you do, do not have the capacity or the time to model things for them. And you've got to just 
get right into maybe this guided practice, um, what you can do is just in that modeling stage, instead of having them watch, you just explain your processes to them and have them try it. And a lot of times that can be just as effective as having them watch you do a therapy session. Both is great um, if you can do that. But if not, you know, it's okay to go right into this guided practice. And a lot of times, um, you know, people in a lot of my programs say like, we want to see you working with the students. We want to see you um, like doing this in a session. But what I have found that sometimes explaining my systems to people and then letting them come up with how to do it in a therapy session on their own. Once I've given them that explicit um, instruction or that direct explanation of what I'm actually doing in therapy, um, what happens is that sometimes they interpret what you're saying a little bit differently than you've interpreted it. And then they come up with something different that's just as effective or maybe even better. So there are some benefits to just explaining the steps and processes as opposed to just having them watch you. Because if they watch you do it, they might just do it the way that you do it, which is great. But there might be other ways to do it that might fit within that framework of effective therapy that where you can together, um, having that person that you're supervising, you can actually learn things from them because they can take what you're doing and expand on it. So, um, you know, again, obviously have them watch you explain, do like, if you can do all of it, that's great. But if you're crunched for time, that's um, just giving them some type of frameworks that you can use um, is a great way for them to stay structured and stay within the context of evidence-based practice, but still not pigeonholing them into like, you have to do it this way. And that can be a really great way to help to empower your therapist by giving them tools, but not being rigid about how they have to use them. So that's what I would recommend doing. Again, the book is called um, Explicit Instruction by Archer and Hughes. I will share that below this video. Um, but again, honestly, um, and that it really talks more about using this framework within the context of teaching, but um, just knowing this framework and how to use it, you can apply it to how you do supervision. So those are the main points about supervision that I wanted to make. Um, I Again, it's it, it can be really, especially if you are going to, you've been the person who has been kind of the main SLP and you, you've been supervising or you haven't had the opportunity to supervise, um, it can be really rewarding. And it's nice to sometimes be able to serve in a different way because you're sharing your skills that you've learned with another clinician and spreading the wealth that way and impacting more students. So again, this, these concepts that I've talked about today, while it varies based on the level of expertise that that person has, whether it be a first year graduate student, whether it be an experienced SLP, this is a framework that you can use and you can use these concepts to give feedback and to work and supervise people that you're working with. Um, obviously, if you've got an, uh, a, an SLP who's experienced, you might not need to be doing the independent practice or the, this whole explicit instruction framework as often, but um, if you have somebody who's struggling with something, then that might be a place where you do step in and say, you know what, why don't you watch me do this? Or why don't we use this other framework? Let me 
give you some training on this and then we'll do it together. So essentially, you know, instead of having them observe you, which you could have them observe you as well, but maybe you're teaching them some type of different structure or framework and explaining it to them. And then you might do it collaboratively and then you have them integrate that into their practice while you give them feedback. So that's the way that you can do it if you've got more of an experienced SLP. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you are interested in joining the School of Clinical Leadership, if you are someone who wants to make a bigger impact on your caseload, if you want to have more leverage and influence over the way that services are delivered in your facility, then definitely check out the School of Clinical Leadership. In this program, I help you better leverage your time and use what I refer to as the asset stacking method so that you can rework your productivity system so that you can make time to do some of those high impact activities that you know you should be doing, but maybe you don't have time for, such as building relationships or collaborating with other professionals. To check out the School of Clinical Leadership, just go to drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Again, that's drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. As always, thank you so much for listening. Remember, it always helps me out if you leave me a rating and review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we will wrap up for now, but I will see you in the next episode. <music>